Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is bringing light into darkness, news, and analysis. I am your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas. This is a pre-recorded show which will be uploaded for your listening edification on the evening of Monday, June the 1st, 2020. You can listen live each Monday night from 6 to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time at koop.org. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis with your host, Pedro Gatos. This is our seventh post-COVID show, A New World, But the Same Place. The art of spying is to cover one's tracks and perhaps falsely frame another by planting evidence that suggests it was them that did it. When it comes to Russiagate, in the January 2017 Intelligence Community Assessment, we alleged Russia hacked the DNC without proving or providing incontrovertible evidence. Studying the situation, one of the most immediate and obvious inconsistencies that Russia did it was the ICA itself. It provided no incontrovertible evidence. It only offered a high degree of confidence that it was Russia. Circumstantial evidence abounded that the investigation was highly questionable. Why did not the FBI seize the server from the agent of the DNC, CrowdStrike? Why did it take some six months to admit that the CIA intelligence community assessment was based on three, not all, of the 17 intel agencies, and that the investigators were handpicked instead of an all-hands-on-deck approach. Who had the motive to distract the public from the content of the emails and get us fixated on Russia for nearly three years? Who benefited from that? Who had the means? Since the release of the DNC emails, we have learned that sworn testimony back in December of 2017 by CrowdStrike president does not support the conclusions. He said they did not have proof that Russia exfiltrated or hacked the DNC computers. Mueller's report did indicate it had Russian fingerprints on it. We also know that the United States Intelligence Services has the means to plant such fingerprints, as was made abundantly clear by the WikiLeaks release, of information that the CIA had a Vault 7 program, which included Marble Framework, an obfuscation tool that allows to implant Chinese, Russian fingerprints and has been used once since 2016. So stay tuned. Tonight's show pays tribute to CIA veteran Ralph McGeehy, who recently succumbed to COVID-19 at age 92, Julian Assange, and the importance of whistleblowing, an up-close examination of James Clapper, former director of national intelligence and the false demonization of Russia. We then pivot to the major focus of tonight's show, the evidence that there was a hollow shell of evidence we call Russiagate. But first, as we do before every show, we first go to war.
We are blessed to have as our guest tonight, Ray McGovern, 27-year veteran of the CIA, whose duties included briefing past presidents of the United States and their administrations uh, during the Ronald Reagan, George H.W. Bush era. And Ray, welcome back to Bringing Light into Darkness. Thanks, Pedro. Good to be back. Ray leads the Speaking Truth to Power section of the Tell the Word, a publishing arm of the Ecumenical Church of the Savior in inner city Washington. He's a former co-director of the Servant Leadership School from 98 to 2004. He's been teaching there for more than two decades. He has taught on the morality of whistleblowing, which is a big subject, especially with such a impotent news media that we have. Ray came to Washington from his native Bronx in the early 60s as an Army Infantry Intelligence Officer, and then served as a CIA analyst for 27 years from the administration of John F. Kennedy to that of George H.W. Bush. His duties included sharing national intelligence estimates and preparing the president's daily brief, which was briefed one-on-one to President Ronald Reagan's five most senior national security advisors from 1981 to 1985. In January 2003, Ray co-created the Veterans Intelligence Professionals for Sanity, VIPS, V-I-P-S, to expose how intelligence was being falsified to justify the war on Iraq. Today, we wanted to start the show by paying tribute to another CIA veteran who recently passed in the month of May, Ralph W. McGee, who passed away on May 2nd of this year at age 92 from the COVID virus. One of the most powerfully insightful books I have read regarding the propagandizing of the American public to accept unjustified U.S. foreign policy interventions as justified was his book, Deadly Deceits, My 25 Years in the CIA by Ralph McGee, published in 1983. It chronicled his experience with CIA's Cold War covert operations in Vietnam and Southeast Asia. A good article to check out some basic information about Mr. McGee can be found in a New York Times piece that was titled Ralph W. McGee, Agent Who Exposed the CIA, Dies at 92 by Tim Weiner, May 14th. It was published in the New York Times of 2020. McGee was born in a Republican household. He attended and played three years of football for Notre Dame before becoming employed with the CIA. He was gung-ho American patriot and still was to his last breath, a stout anti-communist. Moving up within the CIA, by 1968, he landed in Saigon, Vietnam, to work in liaison with the chief of the secret police. He then faced a spiritual crisis. He retired in 1977 from the CIA. Deadly Deceits, My 25 Years in the CIA, appeared six years later after the agency had sought and won significant deletions. Though CIA veterans had published memoirs since the 1960s, few had accused the agency of distorting intelligence to deceive American presidents and the American public to protect its power. And this is what his book did. He talked about sending all of this intelligence back to Langley, indicating that the overwhelming majority of Vietnamese were behind Ho Chi Minh. On page 133 of his book, he quotes Eisenhower admitting, quote, I have never talked with a person knowledgeable in Indo-Chinese affairs who did not agree that 80% of the population would have voted for Ho Chi Minh as their leader, end quote. And he kept on hearing press releases from our government and from the army that 
the opposite was true. So he kept on sending these multiple times, figuring that, well, maybe they didn't get my previous communications. But anyhow, in his book, on page 112, he recounts a meeting with CIA chief William Colby regarding his doubts based on his extensive on-the-ground intelligence gathering about previous agency reporting which claimed the communists did not have the support of the local people and that they forced people to support them with threats and terrorism. Such a picture was inaccurate, he told Colby, who just sat there and did not bat an eye. Quote, we have found that the communists concentrate the majority, almost the entirety of their time winning the cooperation of the peasants. In the conclusion of his book, McGee cites President Reagan's April 2nd, 1982 Executive Order 12356, entitled National Security Information, which limited the public's access to government documents, thereby increasing the CIA's ability to hide from public scrutiny. The president wants the agency free of the constraints of public exposure so that it can gather and fabricate disinformation unharried by criticisms and so that it can overthrow governments without the knowledge of the American people. Such activities are not in the best interest of the majority of Americans, he wrote. McGee then gives the example that it is only the rich that benefit when factory after factory moves to a foreign country, whose leader is kept in power by the CIA operatives, resulting in more job losses for Americans, end quote. Therefore, again, quote, I believe President Reagan acts as a representative of wealthy America and as his executive agency, the CIA, acts to benefit the rich, end quote. So I believe it is not just job losses here in America that occur to the detriment to what McGehee accurately describes as majority Americans. The enticement to move these factories overseas and to operate in countries whose majority populations are just scraping by due to their exploitation by despotic government leaders who are pocketing millions and who have been put or kept in power by U.S. foreign policy interests largely executed by the CIA. That these despots guarantee low-wage workers zero or very little environmental pollution protections, working conditions that are generally much more unsafe and therefore provide greater profit margins are why we support them, because the unbridled motivation is not to promote democracy and freedom, but to maximize profit at the cost of compromised worker safety, health, and worker dignity. Although those words are mainly my interpretation, they are consistent with McGehee's perspective as he expresses throughout his book. McGee, he explains this all must be hidden from the American people. Why? Because we are a good, decent, morally centered populace that knows the difference between making an honest business and egregiously exploiting others along the way. Therefore, a whole largely false propaganda version that covers up these truths is what our government leaders feed our mainstream media, which long ago switch their loyalty to service the status quo than to fundamentally pursue the truth or the matter at hand. The result then, too often, is that they uncritically support and promote unjust wars and promotion of endless military conflicts and the notion that our foreign policy is fighting for democracy and freedom around the world rather than for market advantage at nearly any cost. McGee writes, quote, It is difficult to sell this story when the facts are otherwise. So the agency plants weapons, shipments, forges documents, broadcasts false propaganda, and transforms reality. Thus it creates a new reality that it then believes. And this is what we try to bring light into darkness to, to unveil these contradictions in pursuit of social justice and the truth. 
one of Ralph McGee's main concerns had to do with the same issue of misleading the American public. With that being said, Ray, I wanted to start the show off uh, or segue into the real news that we get. So much of it are from great patriots like Daniel Ellsberg, Julian Assange, even though he's not a U.S. citizen. These folks that put out information that is intended to be kept from the American public. And without it, we are blinded to what our government and what our country is doing around the world. And with it, we can hopefully have the prospects for holding our government accountable. I know you're a close friend of Julian Assange. I know that you're growing your beard, which is beautiful, by the way, in memory of as you shared off air that each time you pass the mirror, you remind yourself of our duty to do what we can to try to get Julian free. Can you briefly indicate the importance and uh, the perspective of this prosecution that's going on and persecution? Sure. I think my wife would beg to differ with you, Pedro. She doesn't consider it beautiful at all. And I think you may be the only person I know that has used that adjective. It's uh, it's disheveled, uh, and I refuse to touch it, really. Uh, I think I cut off one, one or two hairs when I was getting in my soup. But uh, I decided that this time last year, after Julian was uh, unceremoniously dragged out of the Ecuadorian embassy in London, I don't know if uh, any of your audience would be uh, will be remembering that that photo, which was just awful. Um, he looked terrible. Of course, they hadn't let him shave. They wouldn't give him a razor, uh, and he looked just really disheveled. And so uh, I decided, well, what could I do? That's uh, be- besides writing things. And so, what could I do to express my solidarity with my friend Julian, my very much admired friend? And I thought, well, maybe I just uh, I'd be as disheveled as he looked on that fateful day for as long as it took for as long as it took for him to be free. And so I, I tried to form this Julian Assange beard movement, but I got very few takers. Uh, <laughs> uh, so there are only a handful of us doing this, but it's not a, a minor matter. In my view, it's one of the worst things that happened over the past year, where the U.S. government decided to try to extradite and try a publisher of information, his crime being he published war crimes by the U.S. armed forces. That's big. And uh, the implications for free media are immense. The implications for people who don't even, people who are American citizens to be grabbed off the streets of London or out of the court now and brought back to America. It's just really awful. Now, that is the big deal. Now, what I would say here is that Americans are blissfully unaware that this is typically cutting off your nose to spite your face. What do I mean by that? Okay, WikiLeaks was not in existence before 9-11, nor was it really in existence before the unneeded and criminal attack by the U.S. and U.K. forces on Iraq. That was 2003. Of course, 9-11 was 2001. Now, why do I mention all that? Well, I've talked to people who knew how our government was either concealing information about what would happen at 9-11, or they were uh, 
it was either misfeasance or malfeasance, but they knew it was going to happen. And I asked them, people in the FBI, people at NSA, you had the evidence. If you saw foot-dragging on the part of your bureaucracies, and if WikiLeaks were available, as secure as it is now, or use a Dropbox or whatever it is, and uh, you might not get caught, would you have gone to WikiLeaks? And the, the automatic answer, of course we would, because we, we saw what was coming. We knew that our uppers were not going to do anything about it. We couldn't understand that, but there it was. So yes, yes, we would have gone to WikiLeaks. Ask the same thing of people who were inside the government at the time. Karen Katowski, for example, mm-hmm. who sat outside the, the uh, defense secretary's room and could see what was going to happen before Iraq. And actually, there's a movie about how she approached the Knight Ritter reporters at the time and told them, look, you know, this is crazy. This is what's going to happen. There are no weapons of mass destruction. It's all a fraud. Now, those Knight Ritter journalists were the only ones that got it right. Of course, they didn't have much of an audience. Now, I asked Karen, I said, now, you know, if WikiLeaks were available in those days, would you have gone to WikiLeaks? Oh, yeah, I would have given, yeah, of course, of course I would have gone. So there are two good examples. Now, what's my point here? My point here is simply all number, all, all manner of doctors, scientists, biologists, medical researchers who knew that President Trump was screwing up royally, that even though he had been warned and told that this was a real problem, this COVID-19, he just didn't know what to do. And so he said, well, maybe it'll go away. Maybe there'll be a miracle. My God. So that having been said, and they knowing that, why didn't they go to WikiLeaks? Why didn't why didn't they give the memos to WikiLeaks? Now, WikiLeaks doesn't fool around with this information. It just prints what it gets, okay? Why didn't they? Well, number one, I guess uh, the WikiLeaks is not in uppermost in anybody's mind except for the persecution of Julian Assange. And there's a degree of fear, uh, even though the method of giving your information to WikiLeaks is secure, there's certainly a degree of fear you'd be, be found out. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of deaths. And uh, you know, I reviewed the most recent New York Times wrap-up on this, and it was already 36,000 dead. Now it's way beyond that in the U.S., okay? And uh, how many killed were, were killed on, on 9-11? 3,000 plus, okay? Well, hello? So this is big. Yeah, if it, it, people who have this information have have no sense of, of responsibility to make it known to the world and and no real appreciation how easy that is witness what chelsea manning did then this uh, this is cutting off your nose to spite your face by persecuting by torturing really uh, by endangering julian assange's health uh, his exposure to to the covid 19 uh, with his already uh, compromised uh, immune system uh, this is really just you know, Americans don't realize that that's the thing. As you pointed out, the, the press is not going to say this, but I'll say it. And uh, again, it, it's a classic case of cutting off your nose to spite your face. And we could have saved already tens of thousands of lives here. If somebody a month before Trump began to take this seriously 
uh, gave some information to WikiLeaks and said, look, this is really bad. He's not taking it seriously. Maybe that could have caused enough pressure for him to come around and do something sensible before he eventually did. Yeah, I think that's well put. I think also just the idea of of silencing dissent is the motivation, but also people know or should know that everything that WikiLeaks has released are pristine, unaltered documents. Um, so you get the real deal as opposed to the different spinning of and interpretations of day-to-day events that you know leave out so much of the information. It's just shocking when you look at compare the releases that WikiLeaks makes to the interpretation of the American public on that matter, and they're usually, mm-hmm. like, you know, uh, miles apart. Let me turn mm-hmm. to the subject that is of great interest to our listeners and public right now, which has been transpiring around the Russiagate issues recently. Mm-hmm. And I got a number of questions for you, so I wanted to start off with the first one. Your experience with the CIA was very concentrated in Russian diplomacy and Russian history and Russian issues and such. And I know you're a history major as well, but when you look, or when I look, there's like at least three or four legs that, that support the chair of persecution of, of this Russiagate drama or whatever. One of them had to do with Trump being in the pocket of Putin. And relatively speaking, if you look at President Trump's policies towards Russia, and you compare them to Obama's, Trump's has been much more bellicose. There's been multiple bombings of Syria over unproven gas attack allegations. There has been tremendous sanctions and sanctioning of Russia that lack merit that I don't want to specifically get into. The stated goal recently that came out of the special envoy of the Trump uh, military administration part was that we were trying to create a quagmire for Russia in Syria. We chastised Russia. You know, we're trying to remove its Venezuelan ally from the, from the map. The Trump administration sold all of these lethal weapons to Ukraine in the ongoing conflict there against the separatists that have been supported by Russia. What is your take of that claim that Trump was in the pocket of, of Putin? Well, the claim itself is laughable, uh, but if you're trying to figure out what was uh, motivating Trump, you're, you're left with two choices, in my view. One is that he really thought, as he campaigned, it made a lot of sense to have a more decent relationship with Russia. He really thought that. And he recruited people like Mike Flynn, <coughs> who shared that view. Now, what did that mean for the what, what people refer to as the deep state? I call it the security state which is part of what I call the Mickey Mat. <laughs> now, uh, people used to talk about the MIC, the military-industrial complex. It's grown, Pedro. It's, if you have a pencil, it's become the Mickey Mat. M, the military-industrial-congressional-intelligence-media-academia-think-tank complex. Mickey Mat. Sort of. Just think about Mickey Mouse. This is the Mickey Mat. It's powerful, okay? Now, they saw no profit for them, literally speaking, in a more decent relationship with Russia. As a matter of fact, they feared that uh, like nothing else. I mean, if you have a detente or a rapprochement or, or any settling of differences between Russia and the United States, 
Well, how can you justify building more ABM systems, building more supersonic, really big, I mean, F-35? Yeah, how could you justify that? Well, so this is a real danger, and these people swing all the weight there is, and they include intelligence. Remember? Military, industrial, congressional, intelligence, media. Now, why do I say media? Because media, they're the cornerstone here. Without the media, you can't do this stuff. Who owns the media? Well, it's the same mega corporations mm-hmm. that profits here on the arms making and the arms selling. So, I mean, this is a great country or what? Uh, the media, besides the media employs people like ex-CIA directors and ex-intelligence and defense officials, uh, one after the other. So you have a situation here where most Americans really don't know what's up. And uh, the media has never been so powerful, in my view, and never have so many Americans been persuaded of things like Russia, Russia, Russia interfered with the election in 2016 without any proof. Mm-hmm. So just let me go back to your question. Uh, either the president believed that he could uh, improve relations with Russia, or it was a hoax. He didn't believe that. He didn't believe that at all. The answer is the same. If he didn't believe that at all, well, he was already a step ahead uh, into the uh, Mickey Mat, the military, industrial, congressional, intelligence, media, think tank complex. So does it really matter? No, it means that the, that the president is not his own man. Let me this, interject something, too, because what you're talking about is this Mickey Mat, uh, the revolving door deal, where people from the military leave the military, they go into the media, people from Congress, they that are supposed to be legislating to protect the environment and legislating to keep uh, pharmaceuticals uh, companies from having extravagant pricing and all of that stuff. They leave one area and they go into very, very profitable employments with others. So what you're saying makes a lot of sense, and it can be on another show we could actually show, and we have this kind of revolving revolving door type of thing where, where they're all kind of connected and uh, pat each other on the back as we leave out important facts that might contradict that that profit motivation that you're talking about. But I'm sorry, continue, please. Well, that's pretty corrupt. You know, I forget the figures, but the last time I checked, about 80% of the generals and admirals, when they retire at a hefty you know pension, find their way onto the boards of these uh, Lockheed and Raytheon and those, those folks, and they make uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars more out of war-making, out of giving people more weapons to, to profiteer on and, and to make the world more dangerous. So these people have no incentive at all to improve relations with Russia. And let me single out one of them. Before you do, Ray, we need to take a quick break. This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin. This is bringing light into darkness. We are visiting with the esteemed CIA veteran and our guest, Ray McGovern. We'll be back right after this. <laughs> 